You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Hello, um, my name is Marie Lamench. I work at the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Uh, this is a podcast episode about um, digital authoritarianism. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome uh, Mr. Kevin Scheifs and Rachel Faust. Uh, thank you both for joining us today. I'm just going to let you introduce yourself. Um, perhaps it starts with uh, ladies first, uh, Rachel. <laughs> Thanks so much, Marie. Um, happy to be here today. I am currently working with the International Forum for Democratic Studies as an assistant program officer, um, looking at the challenges of authoritarian sharp power in the modern era. Thank you. Hi, Kevin. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Uh, Kevin Shives, Associate Director here at NED and the International Forum, um, recently converted from government service from about 15 years working at the State Department and a couple other U.S. government institutions, uh, but been here at NED doing um, all sorts of things uh, related to authoritarian sharp power, influence operations, China, and a whole range of other things that the Forum uh, works on and researches. Thank you so much for both of you to agreeing to do this. Um, basically, this is part of a, a project funded by the uh, U.S. Embassy in, in Ottawa. And what we want to focus on is the rise of digital authoritarianism around the globe. And I know you guys recently um, created a, a brand new platform um, based on the idea of sharp power. So perhaps uh, the first thing we want to do is how would you define sharp power? Because I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't actually know it. Everybody knows soft power and, and hard power, but you, you yeah. found something else. Yeah, I think so. So uh, I'll let Rochelle jump in after I kind of talk through this a little bit. I, in 2017, Ned released a report on this, and it came right after Russia's uh, interference in the U.S. election. So there was a lot of media focus on it, on this concept. Um, and But what we're talking about is something a little bit different in some ways. What we're talking about sharp power essentially is the manipulation of democratic systems by authoritarian regimes. And I emphasize systems. So we're talking about censorship, surveillance across national borders, the distortion of political cultures and discourse through influence operations online or through relationships with elites. Those are just some evocative examples. Um, what we're not talking about is soft power or, um, you know, sort of the positive influences that any country, certainly any major power, wants to have on another society when it interacts with it through its culture, through its business, through its public diplomacy. We're also not just talking about information warfare, which is a little more recognizable and easy to understand, and it's certainly well out in the public domain now. It's broader, sharp power is broader, and it's more pervasive. Um, we think it preys upon the, the proximity and relationship between free and less free or closed societies in today's globalized world. So you have, you know, closed societies or highly authoritarian societies like China or Russia or Saudi Arabia, UAE, in, in interacting with in incredible deep ways with very open societies. And sometimes the, the objectives that these authoritarian powerful regimes at times have with open free societies, they prey upon the open societies and the nature of democracies. And so it requires sort of an extra special set of skills to be able to think about how we, as democracies, defend ourselves against some of these tactics. Um, these instances used to be more isolated when we started researching this, you know, five plus years ago and other folks in my office, including Rochelle. But now we really see this as a recognizable pattern. Um, let me give you one analogy before turning it over to Rochelle. So 
that I like to help explain sharp power and what it is. So let's take an example that now might, for a lot of people, uh, maybe in Canada, maybe in U.S. or elsewhere, seem a little odd and foreign, which is going into a restaurant, right, to actually eat real food at a restaurant. So you, the customer, you go in and the chef that you're going to, you know, taste their food, their goal, the owner, their, their goal is to persuade you through the dining experience that their food's the best food around, right? They want to impress you. That's soft power. It's positive. It's designed to influence, but it's designed to do it in a positive way that's simply showcasing your value, your merit. It's something every hook, every country really hopes to achieve through their global interactions. Now, suppose that the chef has found a way to alter your taste buds in some way that before you even step foot in the restaurant, you are predisposed and inclined to love their food, think their restaurant's the best, support that chef and owner's narrative that their food is five stars on Yelp or whatever, whatever the, the, the objective they have. Your senses, the, the taste, the feel, your hearing, all of that is predisposed to react in a specific way. That's sharp power. That's not force feeding you their food. That's, that's hard power. But they're altering your tools, your sensory experience of what they're offering. Our democratic institutions, our online and offline information environment, our elites that help shape our political culture, the news sites that we read, the business transactions that happen that are supposed to be market-based, our sense of privacy when we use technology, all of these things are democracy's sensory experiences and the tools for how we maintain a healthy society and really a functioning democracy. That's a really good analogy. Thank you. Hachelle. Yeah, I, that's really great, Kevin. I think all that I would add to that is that soft power and hard power are both strategies that can be used by any type of government, whether it's authoritarian, democratic, somewhere in the middle, whereas sharp power is inherently authoritarian. It's not something that can be exerted by a democracy. And we really want to emphasize that point, as well as how the activities that are involved as part of these sharp power efforts are corrosive and corrupting and have the effect of limiting free expression, curbing pluralism, and distorting the political environment in foreign countries where these authoritarian regimes are exerting that influence. Yeah, growing up, I, I attended a lot of um, lessons at the Goethe Institute in order to my, maintain my, my German. So that's that's more like soft power. So basically, exactly. you, you guys, you created um, something called the Sharp Power Portal, which I encourage everyone to have a look at. Um, what is the um, the mission behind the portal? Who are you? Who is it for? And um, how do you create that content? And, and and what are the resources and languages that that you use in order to to kind of make sure that this thing is open source? Yeah. So uh, thanks so much. So we could find this you know free advertisement here at sharppower.org. Um, this project originally began really as just a simple Excel sheet that um, as we started to finish up the 2017 Sharp Power Report, uh, we started collecting a lot of these just points of evidence um, of instances where we think that is sharp power. Um, and we would begin to code them, you know, by source country, by affected country, by topic, link, you know, all of these sort of things, just kind of a basic way of organizing research. Over time, though, the evidence, it grew bigger, it grew over time, and certain patterns started to merge. And we felt that there's a better way that we can present this information than just throwing out an Excel sheet to people. Mm. And so we wanted to be able to create something that's really user-friendly, um, that's visual in some way, and an easy one-stop shop for people to go and learn more about this phenomenon. And the people that we really think could use this best um, are a couple categories. You know, one is journalists who want 
some very easy to access resources on this really interesting and impactful topic as we're hearing right now in the news of sharp power and authoritarian influence. Um, two uh, researchers who want to dive in deep and really kind of develop some awareness of patterns um, and what's going on in the world and maybe within their specific sector. Maybe they don't even come at it from a democracy angle, but maybe they're just tech policy experts and want to see what is out there about technology that is not just positive, but also negative when it comes to values and democracies and, and, and democratic issues? Um, and then third, activists who are uh, in the field right now working on a whole range of incredible democracy, human rights, and good governance issues, but maybe you're starting to think about this concept of authoritarian influence, and maybe they don't like what China or Russia or some other authoritarian power is doing in their own country. Maybe it violates some of these you know, basic you know, values of sovereignty um, or um, you know, a healthy information system, and they want to see what's happening in their country, first and foremost, but also what's happening in countries around them or countries like them or specific sectors, and all of our databases sortable from that. Um, and so anyways, right now we have it in five languages. Of course, a lot of uh, resources in English, but also resources in Russian, Arabic, Spanish, and French. And we'll give you the breaking news soon. We're going to have Chinese language resources oh, at some point soon. Um, and hopefully uh, be able to, and maybe even German at some point. You mentioned that at yeah. some point. Maybe you can help us. Um, anyways, um, and we obviously are really excited to be able to take contributions from the outside, from, from other researchers. We've had some people engage us since we launched this in December, sent us their ideas. There's other databases out there that maybe a portion of them deal with it, sharp power. Um, and some of them are broader or different in nature. Yeah. We hope to work work with them and find some ways to uh, to collaborate with them. Maybe Rochelle could explain a little bit our criteria and how we determine what goes in and what goes out of our database. Sure. So as Kevin mentioned, this whole project really started out of an Excel spreadsheet that contained myriad articles and resources, reports um, that kind of just ran the gamut of topics and sectors. Um, so we wanted to develop a criteria that we could um, present to our audience to clearly explain how we identified the news articles, blog posts, academic essays, in-depth analyses, and other resources that we included in the portal that meet our definition of sharp power. So, for example, we look for resources that, first off, describe the activities of an authoritarian regime or a regime-linked actor. They also need to document the transnational influence efforts that are occurring within the public sphere of foreign societies. And then finally, they need to highlight the effects of authoritarian influence on the integrity of institutions and globalized spaces. To the greatest extent possible, we've tried to prioritize local perspectives because we think that's really important. Mm -hmm. And then we've also tried to include the resources that are going to offer the most context about the changed behaviors that have actually resulted from the authoritarian influence activities. Um, some criteria that we developed as a kind of a cutoff line are that harder forms of interference like cyber warfare or activities in the military domain fall outside of our definition of sharp power and would not be included yeah. in the portal. Yeah. Um, and then if your listeners are curious to learn more about our resource selection process or that criteria, they can check out the about page on our website, which is at sharppower.org, as Kevin mentioned earlier. Okay, great. Um, one, one thing I like about the, uh, the idea of the Excel sheet is when you try to define the kind of types of shop power um it's hard sometimes to categorize them but you, you manage to find like five sectors 
I think you have media and information, commerce, culture and entertainment, knowledge generation and technology. Do these categories sometimes obviously intersect and how did you find them? And do you think, you know, we talk a lot about the information system. I think that category has gotten a lot of attention, but are there perhaps knowledge generation is one that is perhaps not looked at sufficiently or do you find that we focus too much on one and which one should be uh, is has been kind of overlooked by policymakers or that's a really great question i'll i'll kind of start with the evolution and how we reach these five categories that we've now um introduced into the portal so uh, when we published our 2017 report that kevin mentioned earlier sharp power rise in authoritarian influence um, we really introduced the sharp power concept to our audience and, um, you know, to the think tank and policy communities. And in that specific report, we used country case studies, but within those case studies, we were looking at sharp power in the realms of culture, academia, and the media. So we already had kind of three of our sectors identified there. And then from there, we broadened the scope of our focus as we began noticing that these same trends that were occurring in those three sectors were also emerging in other sectors like technology and commerce. So the next phase of this project was then our Sharp Power and Democratic Resilience Report series, where we published nine different reports and used the four, four sectors of knowledge generation, um, which encompasses think tanks, universities, and also the policy community, as well as media and the information space, technology and commerce, all as a framework for exploring how authoritarians are operating in different settings and spaces and how these cross-cutting domains serve as conduits that are connecting societies across the world. So at that point, we had the four categories or sectors. And then in the final report of that series, and then also in the Sharp Power Research Portal, we placed a renewed emphasis on our investigation into the culture and entertainment sector based on research that had started to come to the forefront over the past couple of years um, such as PEN America's really excellent report examining the effects of Chinese censorship on Hollywood and the global yeah. filmmaking industry. So that's kind of how we landed on the five sectors that are examined in the portal. And then to circle back to your question about which of those sectors we might say are under-examined or overlooked by policymakers or researchers, um, I would say that there's elements in all five of the sectors that could benefit from further scrutiny um, but as you said, I think, you know, media and the information space is one that's been talked about quite a bit um, in all sorts of different circles. Um, and then, you know, I think the commerce sector is one where there's actually um, kind of a gap in discussion. So definitely we're hearing a lot of conversation about, um, you know, China's Belt and Road initiatives and the related investments and how the structure of those might be corrosive for democratic institutions. But there's been a significantly less amount of discussion about the issue of elite capture, mm. which is a form of strategic corruption that targets critical institutions and key individuals in a receiving country's system of democratic governance. Um, similarly, there are obstacles that civil society and the media face when they're trying to research the effects of authoritarian sharp power. Um, so, for example, major businesses that have altered their practices or censored themselves to comply with pressure from China, Russia, Russia or another authoritarian regime aren't likely to make that information readily available to the public. Um, and following the breadcrumbs of that can be really challenging. So we're trying to make that process a little bit easier for journalists and researchers 
by providing these examples and the evidence in the portal um, from all of the fantastic contributors that have written the resources that we've decided to include. How many contributors do you have, by the way? Do you, do you know approximately? That's a really fantastic question. I don't know the exact number off of the top of my head. I would say as far as um, we have it broken down into sources. So for example, um, you know, an academic journal or mm. a, a news outlet. So like the New York Times or something like that. Um, we have it broken down into that. So I would say, you know, there's probably well over a hundred different sources that we've included. Mm. We've, we've tried to identify a diversity and like I said, um, try to include those local perspectives as much as possible. Um, and then of course, you know, each of those sources has a number of different authors that have um, written for them. So we do have some repeating authors, especially if they're um, the you know, foremost voice on a specific topic, but um, there's quite a variety and, and it's really interesting to see um, the different lenses that, that different voices try to take. Yeah, Kevin, you want to add something? Well, back to that conversa uh, conversation on sectors, one of the things that's interesting, I think, is that if you just look at the portal, you've got a great resource page where you can go and just sort it by resource, see how many resources are there in each sector, right? Just kind of a basic filtering mechanism. Right now we have like 800 plus resources total on the portal. If you look at the one that's less reported, it's cultural and entertainment. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about that sector is it's a sector that is not, for the most part, predisposed to introspection, to research on itself, to like investigative news, all of these things and that are so natural in the media and information sector, um, heavy reporting and, and on an investigation into business practices from huge outlets, right? But in the cultural sports entertainment, they're worried about like, you know, is LeBron James injured for tonight's Laker game, right? They're not thinking about like, you know, businesses and, and putting a, a, a microscope under their activities and practices. Um, so there actually might be a lot more in one of these sectors like cultural sports and entertainment, but those sort of civil society mechanisms of investigative journalism, of research and, and introspection and all these sort of things, they're not really a play in those sectors for the most part. Um, and so sort of the absence of resources might tell you a little bit about what might be under the hood if you found an opportunity in a way to look there more in, in, a, in a more investigative way. It's funny because the culture or sports for me, it's always been one of these areas where this should, I mean, this has always happened. Um, if you look at Hollywood, for example, um, over the past decades, there's been it was Russia and then it's China and then these major changes. So it's uh, there's not enough introspection, but we we kind of know that. <laughs> um, you you identify kind of five countries. I think that you call authoritarian kind of influencers. Uh, could you expand a little bit on that? And and then you know, who who are they? Are they the usual culprits? Some usual ones, some less usual ones, I'd say. Um, we have a, a reasonable but I think fairly arbitrary threshold to catalog a country as an authoritarian influencer. So there's China and Russia, of course, which I think most people thinking about the world understand them as an authoritarian influencer mm. in some way, however they define it. Um, but we've also cataloged Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Iran as authoritarian influencers. And, you know, we looked at this as figure out who who would categorize as meeting these criteria that Rochelle outlined earlier. You know, we looked at the number of sectors that they are impacting 
and that we have evidence for the number of countries, that it's not just a bilateral issue between one country and another. Um, we looked at the, the number of instances, for example, and, and made some made some general decisions. And and I think we we saw some patterns, right? So China's sharp power activities are really in far more countries and is dominant across each of the five sectors um, mm. than any of the other authoritarian influencers. Um, Russia's, of course, his activities cluster a little bit more in places like Eastern and Central Europe, but they also stretch in some ways to Latin America and Africa. Um, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Iran are more regionalized in some ways in the Middle East and North Africa region. Um, and so some of that is common sense and some of that is intuitive. Um, and there's also just an extraordinary interest in what China and Russia are doing in the world. Right. But right now, there's not quite as much interest as what Russia, as what Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Iran or other potential authoritarian influencers are doing out there in the world. Honestly, adopting some of those same tech uh, tactics and techniques that China and Russia have begun to perfect in some ways. And I think that issue of authoritarian learning and coordination potentially mm -hmm. among each other is a really fascinating topic. Um, you know, we've seen China draw from Russia's playbook for influence operations. Yeah around the world, obviously the covert and authentic troll operations that are out there. Um, China does it a little bit differently, of course, uh, but they've also adopted some of the tactics and maybe been more successful in some regions that RT and other uh, Russian-backed state media have in, in how China has licensing partnerships with a whole range of media outlets abroad to where the only real voice on China that's permeating those information environments is Xinhua or Global Times mm -hmm. um, and People's Daily and these sort of highly, you know, censored and propagandistic outlets that are out there. Um, and I think what's even more concerning is the multiplying effect. And there's there's some resources in here um, in the portal that you'll see is the multiplying effect that certain tools that are out there are available to authoritarians. So, for example, disinformation for hire operations, that public relations firm from all around the world, not just sort of your you know, typical firms in the U.S. or Europe, but all around the world are, are, are sort of open service enterprises for authoritarian regimes to utilize them to conduct their own influence operations around the world through everything from inauthentic activity to working with key um, online video and YouTube influencers in order to, you know, further whatever narrative that they want to further, whether it's you know, MBS is the you know most powerful reform-oriented ruler in the world. To um, you know, uh, you know, disinformation against the Houthis in Yemen. I mean, mm. there's there's a whole range of options there um, that these different tools that are out there that really a lot of authoritarians can take advantage of. Mm -hmm. Rochelle, did you have anything to add? Um, I would just say that you know we acknowledge that the authoritarian influencers that are exerting the most influence, I would say, around the world can change over time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, back, I think it was 2014, 2015, about we were producing a blog looking at uh, resurgent authoritarianism. And at the time, um, Venezuela was one of the authoritarian right. actors that we looked at as, um, you know, a country of focus. And in the years since, I think, um, due to its internal economic issues and, and political strife, um, Venezuela has become much less focused on trying to exert influence um, in its region, you know, let alone around the world. So we do acknowledge that 
ability for for this list to change. And also, we we do plan to add to it um, as those changes occur, and as um, you know, we interact with people and researchers and journalists who can make the case for you know adding to the list, including another authoritarian influencer. Yeah, and shop power probably requires a certain number of economic mm -hmm. means. Um, Definitely. And you need to be able to deploy that kind of effort. Um, one question I want to ask as well is what should be or what should be the policy response or the response from, let's say, academia or Hollywood? Because I know in academia there is more and more worry about Chinese influence, for example, including here in Canada. And are you planning on eventually tracking the responses as well to, in order to kind of um, give recommendations perhaps to, to, to uh, the people you're, you're trying to target? Yeah, so uh, for sure. And you can actually go to sort of the, when you go to the website, you'll see a link where it says sectors. You can go to sectors and you can actually see what we've thought were the summary version of responses of mm -hmm. how democracies have been able to showcase resilience and respond. So here, let me just, let me just go there now with one of the, one of the sectors here. We'll pick um, knowledge generation, which is, we're talking about uh, research institutions. We're talking mm -hmm. about think tanks, these sort of things, which sometimes I think is actually kind of underreported in the oh, field, yeah. but um, about what's happening. There's, with, there's a lot of money involved. So there is a lot of money involved. That's all right. Um, whenever universities rely mm -hmm. on, foreign students, it comes with uh, potential thinking about how, how the trade-offs happen. But, you know, we've identified a few things that universities could do here, right? Academic institutions should implement strict codes of conduct to guide their relationships with authoritarian actors, develop due, di due diligence policies to include public disclosures of information about donors and sponsors, because there's a lot of data that we've collected and others have written about, um, about how China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, uh, whether it's, um, you know, government-backed entities or, you know, oligarchs connected to the regime, um, that they have laundered their reputations or in these university settings or set up endowments in their name in order to, you know, showcase how great they are or perhaps gain access within a specific policy circle. We talked about how universities should reduce financial exposure to financial coercion, how they can, you, you, um, how they can work across sector Right and engage with other universities to share resources and experiences of who you know politically exposed persons are mm. um, and how they're going about conducting due diligence. Right, so there's there's definitely some ways in which we've collected some of these different responses. Um, we had a, a to the Sharp Power Democratic Resilience series, which is a series of nine working papers that we released sim from 2000 and. 21 to 2022. I don't think they started in 2020. But anyways, uh, we had a capstone essay that also highlighted a number of different recommendations related to the need for democratic unity. Obviously, a lot of people focus on the need for more transparency and a lot of different policies and low transparency of how sectors operate, of regulations, of privacy controls on technology. That's a big one. Um, and investigative journalism, obviously, a lot of people think that's a really powerful antidote to understand and to, to counteracting sharp power of sort of, you know, utilizing the weaknesses of an open society, right? And utilizing the strengths of those as well of investigative journalism to go after the information and let responses by different sectors, which maybe shouldn't be controlled by legal measures, um, help, help them organically find ways to respond. Great. 
Um, perhaps as a, as a final question, I want to look at, at more of a case study, perhaps, looking at Ukraine and how sharp power is being displayed over there, especially since, you know, this is a, a conflict that doesn't simply involve involved Russia and, and China, but you have Europe, the United States, and, you know, obviously there are other, other countries interested as well. So perhaps I, I, you could talk a little bit about that, looking at Ukraine. Yeah, um, it's really impressive uh, what Ukrainian civil society has been able to do recently over the last month or two and the resilience they've shown, not just to beat back an invader, um, but to really dominate and win the information space uh, globally. Um, there's still plenty of vulnerabilities there. And I think mm -hmm. you talk to any Ukrainian civil society organization, they'll say the same right now. Um, but, you know, I just went back to a resource that we had from 2016. Okay, um, and it was out of Chatham House. And the, here's the quote. The quote from this resource goes, in the medium term, the contest for the hearts and minds of citizens will persist with the scale and outreach of anti-Western groups continuing to testify to the presence of active networks of genuine believers within this new Russian world. This is like two years after um, Crimea. And greater transparency and deeper engagement with citizens as a part of independent civil society could bridge opposing views and help counter the challenge of artificial div divisions nurtured by Kremlin-funded non-state actors. So essentially saying civil society needs to have more transparency and deeper engagement to be effective, to prove resilient. And that's exactly, I think, what's happened in Ukraine, that you've seen so many journalists, so mm. many organizations be able to adapt their operations in a wartime footing and be able to outmaneuver um, Russia, which was the supposed, you know, behemoth of you know, uh, information operations globally and really win an information war at this point and, and do well. There's still a lot more at play. And especially as people's attentions wax and wane, um, you know, over the next number of months or however long this conflict goes on. Um, but, you know, they've been able to prove resilient to that, um, uh, resilient to that effort. Rochelle. Yeah, I think to, you know, this spotlight that's been placed on, of course, you know, Russia's military operations in Ukraine, but also its its disinformation activities, its its economic ties with, you know, within Ukraine, within the region, um, but also across the world. I think that just goes to show how important it is to continue developing this understanding of the diverse tactics that Russia has in its mm -hmm. tool belt. Um you know, because it's to place the military confrontation into context, you can look at all of these, you know, issues that we're discussing in this conversation about sharp power. Um, you know, for example, there's been a significant amount of pressure on the um, U.S.-based and international tech companies that have been operating in Russia and have actually engaged in censorship in the past, um, but now are no longer willing to do so and, um, you know, have been kicked out of Russia by the government. Um, you know, for example, um, Facebook and Instagram were both kicked out, um, you know, on, based on claims that they were promoting extremist content. Um, and then also, likewise, we've seen that international companies are pulling out of Russia, um, such as McDonald's, H&M, um, um, just a wide variety of companies that we've been looking at in this context of sharp power because they have been pressured by Russia and China and other authoritarian regimes to modify their operations and their narratives 
in a way that suits those authoritarian preferences. Mm -hmm. um, so I really think this is kind of an interesting moment of reflection. And I wonder if it will end up being, you know, a point where these companies, these firms really do start to recognize the effects of their interactions with author authoritarian regimes, you know, both within the present moment and then looking beyond it. Um, so I just think that's something that's really interesting that's come out of this um, truly tragic circumstance of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Or football, I mean, soccer. Exactly. You know, mm -hmm. in, in England. Abramovich got a lot of attention yesterday as well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kevin Chives, Rachel Faust, for joining us today. This was amazing. I could talk to you guys for hours. Um, <laughs> But thank you. Thank you uh, once again for joining us. And I encourage everyone to uh, look at the, um, at the platform and, and to contribute if they can. Yes, please. We're, we're, we love collaboration. Um, it's a great site. Uh, it's got a great map. It's got uh, wonderful ways to engage with it. Sharppower.org. Go there. Learn. There right. you go. <laughs> thank you so much. It was thank so great you. to be here.